Welcome to another episode of the Christian Combatives Podcast. I am your host and servant in Jesus Christ, Paladin Actual. What I'd like to start responding to today, and I may cut this video into, into different chunks or respond to it more in, in different days, is Dr. Gavin Ortland put out a, a couple of videos responding to something that Dr. Ken Ham said. Dr. Ken Ham basically suggested that uh, if a person does not believe in the six-day creation, that they're, that they're getting this conclusion from modern uh, modern methods of understanding science, modern methods of understanding history, modern methods of interpreting scripture, but not the traditional Christian approach of understanding and interpreting scripture. Dr. Ortland, he's got a channel called Truth Unites. I highly recommend you check it out. I'm a huge fan of most of uh, Dr. Ortland's work. Uh, I doesn't mean I agree with him on, on everything, but I think that he has a, a wonderful approach. Uh, I think he calls it the ironic approach, whereas I'm more the ironic. Um, he has a wonderful approach to discussing these things. He has a wonderful and, and and very expansive grasp on church history and writings and and a whole variety of, of related topics. Uh, in this instance, I, I disagree with Dr. Ortland on the age of the earth. I do believe that the Bible specifically says you know, how old or how long creation took to take place, and I think we have no reason to read it in any other way. Now, traditionally, traditionally, and this is something he'll point out, and, and I've got some quotes from Luther and others uh, to this effect as well, traditionally there has been disagreement on on understanding Genesis chapters 1 and 2. This is not only a modern thing where, you know, throughout all of history we understood that this was six 24-hour days, and then, you know, in the past 20 years or so we decided to, you know, start watching a... a I don't know. You start start reading, um, you know, books on you know Dawkins and stuff like that, and then all of a sudden we've got these 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 new interpretations of the Bible. No, there's been disagreement about this stuff for a while. He points out, I believe, Augustine, uh, Augustine, who, however you want to say it, uh, believed that creation happened instantaneously, and so so there are examples. So in in examples of people disagreeing about the understanding of Genesis chapters one and two, the creation account, uh, in part one of his video, this video, this is part two that I'm going to be responding to because I don't really disagree with anything he said in part one. Um, part two of the video is called "Response to Ken Ham," part two, animal death, uh, historicity, and science, uh, and this is talking about. Oh, well, I mean, so part one of the video talked about whether or not, you know, anybody else came to these conclusions before before the modern day, and he gave examples of plenty of people who did. Uh, in this one, he comes to um, specific objections that he has as to why he comes to the conclusion that he has come to. What I would like to propose throughout the entirety of this video, and I would, I would invite you to go and watch both of his videos, both of uh, the videos that, um, that Gavin Ortland put out, again, Truth Unites on YouTube, what I want you to keep in your mind is this one question. What text led you to your conclusion? Because the fact of the matter is this. There is only one historical account of creation. There's only one, and there's only one trustworthy one. Now, there's plenty of other uh, derivatives where, where there are creation accounts, creation myths that are maybe maybe in some way derived from the truth uh, that's recorded in Scripture. But the only person who was present in all of creation was God. And the only person that God used specifically and infallibly and inspired to write this down was Moses. So this is what we have in the first five books of the Bible. We've got the, the book of Genesis as God, let's say it like this, God let Moses in some way understand what happened, what happened in the creation account and inspired him to write it down uh, in an infallible, inerrant, uh, and infallible and inspired <laughs> in an inspired way. So because of that, we only have one historical account of creation. So if you want to understand creation, you have to base you have to base your understanding of creation off that singular 
account we have of it happening. Remember, this is a miracle that we're talking about. This entire creation account is a, is a miracle. So, and, and number two is that it's a historical event. So if you want to try to use the scientific method to understand creation, you're going to fall short for two very obvious reasons. One, you don't use science, which is empiricism, the ability to predict, observe, and repeat to test things. You don't use that on a singular historical event that has already taken place long before and that you have no way of observing now. Like you can, you can use uh, the scientific method to observe something that repeats, like dropping something in gravity, uh, and you can see this happening again and again. But you can't say, "Well, I use the historic the the um, the scientific method to to understand this singular historical event." Well, no, you you didn't. You can understand something that that maybe if if you, it was a process that could repeat. Okay. Anyways, the other the other part of this is that it's a miracle. If you're trying to use science to understand a miracle, you you failed in understanding what a miracle is. It's God specifically showing sovereignty over the natural law. Him doing something that would otherwise not be possible. For example, turning water into wine or walking on water. You wouldn't take any of these miracles and say, well, you know, science says that you can't walk on water. Therefore, God didn't really walk on water. In the same way, you shouldn't take this and say, well, you know, science says matter and energy can't come from nothing. Therefore, God did not create ex nihilo. You know, science says that this is, you know, this method accurately describes how old something is, some sort of dating mechanism. Therefore, this miraculously created thing must have been created, you know, six million, billion, whatever years ago. Uh, you don't use science to try to understand a miracle. It's it's the wrong tool for the job. The only way you can understand a miracle is how God describes it to you. And the only description we have of this miracle is in the Bible. So again, the question, the one question I want you to keep in mind, and that I would act at, excuse me, that I would ask Dr. Ortland is what text, what part of the text led you to your conclusion? Because his argument seems to be, from what I understand, it seems to be the way the text is written, it could possibly allow for these different understandings. If you read the text, you can say, okay, well, I could see how this could be true, or this could be the way it happened, or or whatever. It could possibly allow for different understandings. But my question, again, is what text led to your conclusion? And if the text did not lead to your conclusion, what source are you using to lead to your conclusion. Uh, and he gets into he gets into examples. Let me see in the video. He talks about, um, let me see, did I history receive Genesis? No. Where is it? He talks about like Lumen. Oh, well, I'll play the video and he talks about some 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 parts that he uh, um, that, that, that he cites as, as reasons for why people came to the conclusions that they did. There are reasons in the past why people before modern uh, biblical interpretation methods came to the conclusions they did. But again, I would argue that these reasons are not that they read the scripture and the scripture tells them this thing, but rather that they read the scripture, they didn't understand how this thing could possibly be, so they used their reason to try to come up with an explanation. So I'm going to hit play, and it'll be part of his, uh, part of his introduction, and I'll, I'll pause and comment as, as we go. In a previous video, I argued against Ken Ham's approach to the doctrine of creation. He's a famous spokesperson for young earth and... I can't talk to... <laughs> In a previous video, I argued against Ken Ham's approach to the doctrine of creation. He's a famous spokesperson for young earth creationism, which is the idea that the days of Genesis 1 are 24-hour periods of time, such that the universe is very young, maybe six to 10,000 years old, something like that. And he sees this as different from an issue like baptism or spiritual gifts, where Christians can legitimately disagree. 
He sees this as a litmus test for faithfulness to Scripture. He says what is at stake is nothing less than the authority of Scripture, the foundations of the gospel. Uh, if the early chapters of Genesis are not true literal history, remember those words, then the rest of the Bible is undermined, including its teaching about salvation and morality. One of his reasons for this that we were going through is he, he thinks that there's nothing in the Bible that would lead you to read the text any other way. He thinks the only reason people could be something of, uh, else, a different view, is because of things outside the Bible putting pressure on you. So, so again, um, uh, I want to restate my my desire here. Is The question is, what in the text? So, so um, uh, Dr. Orland disagrees with uh, Dr. Ham's um, statement that the only reason you could believe something other than the, the six-day literal creation um, is because of something outside of the text uh, having an influence on you. Now, you could you could say, okay, well, I read the text, I don't understand it, and let me try to figure out some other solution. And that's not what I'm asking for here. I, I, what I want to ask for that I don't think is presented is what in the text led to your conclusion. Not what did you understand, what is it, what is unclear, therefore you came to, uh, you know, you, you came up with something, some way to kind of square that circle, but what in the text specifically uh, led to your conclusion? Um, real quick, I, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pull over. Let me see if this screws things up. Oh, here we go. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pull over to another video uh, that Dr. Ham, or excuse me, I'm gonna pull over to another video real quick that Dr. Ortland put out as well, called "Don't Divide Over Young Earth Creationism." And this is uh, this is an appeal. Um, this isn't a statement of here. Here's what you should believe, but this is a statement about. Um, whether or not it should be a divisive issue. And I'm putting this in here because a part of his introduction in this current video that we're watching uh, is on kind of the importance of, of young earth creationism. How important is it? And, and what should you do if somebody disagrees on it? You know, what is the weight of this disagreement? Would really just encourage us not to make the specific question of the age of the earth and how literalistically we read Genesis 1, a wedge issue in the church. We can coexist within the church amidst differences on this issue. Our unity in the gospel is not at stake here. Look, look, think of it like this. If you make the authority of Scripture and a foundational Christian worldview and opposing liberalism and all these things that Ken Ham makes uh, bound up with young earth creationism, if you follow that way of thinking, if you triage it like that, St. Augustine of Hippo, Charles Spurgeon, J. Gresham Machen, B.B. Warfield, down the line, they're all out. They're all liberals. They're all unfaithful. You see, that's unhelpful. This is an issue on which there's space for us to disagree within the church and argue about it and care about it and study it and pursue the truth about it, but not make it a criterion or a litmus test of fidelity to Scripture. Okay, so this is this is something that I want you to keep in mind while listening to Dr. Ortland, and this is unfortunately there there are kind of two ways to fall off the horse on this one. And on one side, he describes this way in which somebody says, "Well, you absolutely, positively must 100% agree with everything in this uh, understanding of creation in the age of the earth, or you are outside of the Christian faith." And he gives example of, of people who would therefore be outside of the Christian faith. The other way to fall off the horse that again, I don't want you guys to think that this is what Dr. Or Portland is proposing is to, is to treat it too lightly, to not argue about it, to say, well, let's just agree to disagree. It's not important enough to really fight about. No, this is absolutely an important enough issue to fight about. And while this issue itself, while, you know, belief in a, a literal six-day creation or not, um, 
may not itself constitute whether or not somebody is a Christian. It is absolutely something that can undermine, and and, and this is where I kind of do agree with Ham on this, that can absolutely undermine a person's understanding of what they can get from Scripture. Do they get a series of, you know, morals and kind of Aesop's fables and kind of a general understanding of, well, you know, maybe God sort of made something and, you know, there's a demiurge or, you know, whatever. Some There's all kinds of like crazy under, misunderstandings that people could get. Is this, you know, if you can say, well, you know, the Bible says that this happened in creation and these are the days of creation and whatever, and you say, well, I don't think that's true. I think it's as uh, as what, what, what Dr. Jordan Peterson would say, it's 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 the precondition for truth. It's more of a, uh, a parabolic understanding. It's not actually true. It's not a description of a historical event or a historical process. It's just kind of this general truism type thing. If you do that for Genesis chapter one and two, what is the limiting principle? You can say, well, Genesis 1 and 2 are poetry or whatever. No, well, you can apply that to other places in Scripture, too. You can apply that to prophecy. A lot of prophecy is poetic in nature. So you have to be extremely careful about how you approach this issue, because if you approach it too lightly, which, again, is not what Dr. Ortland is suggesting you do, if you approach it too lightly, you can, in fact, use the undermining of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 to undermine the rest of Scripture. If you undermine, for example, the days of creation, what would stop you from undermining the order of creation? You'll you'll pay attention later on in the Bible when Jesus and Paul and other people are talking about creation, and they use the order of creation as the precedent, as the foundation for many of the Christian beliefs and practices. If you have undermined that God created the you know the earth in six twenty four hour days, what would stop you from undermining that He made them man and woman, and that because He made man first and woman second, and yada yada yada, this is why you know you can't ordain. Or, or ordain women, or, you know, whatever, like, whatever principle is derived from the order of creation, and there are a lot of principles derived from the order of creation, where there's a complementary nature between man and women, because, men and women, because that's how God made them, if you undermine that at the very beginning, you can undermine so much later on. This is why it is absolutely essential to really study this issue, to really treat it seriously, and if you are saying, okay, this is poetic or whatever, this is some sort of way that is not meant to be understood literally, you need a limiting principle, and that needs to be clearly defined. Why is it that this six-day creation part can be seen as a, a parable or an allegory or an analogy or something like that, something metaphorical, but then he created the male and female isn't? That him creating Adam out of the dust, or him creating Eve out of Adam's side, that that isn't also parabolic. What is the limiting principle? But again, the one question I want you to keep in mind, and the one question that I would like to ask Dr. Orland is, what text led to your conclusion? Since nothing else describes creation except for the Bible— Nothing else accurately and perfectly describes it except for the Bible. And yes, it doesn't tell us all the details that we would like to have. And yes, there's some language there that we can say, well, I'm not entirely sure what this means. But you have a conclusion. How did you get there? And because we know Scripture is the only way we can get to the conclusions about, uh, you know, the, the historical event of creation, what parts of Scripture did you use to get to your specific conclusion? Let's keep going. So what I was trying to do in my last video is just work through how many examples there are, pre-modern examples like St. Augustine, 
modern examples like B.B. Warfield, where it looks like you have godly Orthodox Christians who come to a different view on Genesis 1 and the early chapters of Genesis for reasons in the text. We talked about Augustine's reasons, for example, the light before luminaries issue, dischronology in Genesis 2, 4, and 5, God's rest on the Sabbath, and so forth. We'll get into those a little more in this video. Now, some people, by the way, say, but Augustine wasn't an old earth creationist. That misses the point. Um, <laughs> I'm going to address that at the end of this video. The, the point is not whether he believed in an old... He, so Augustine believed, uh, as far as I understand, he believes, and, and again, uh, Dr. Orland explains this a bit more in his previous video, um, Augustine believed in a sort of instantaneous creation, which, again, I would struggle to see how you would come to a conclusion of an instantaneous creation from the text, but Dr. Orland is explaining that there are examples of people that we consider, I mean, historically consider very strong Christians taking the Bible very seriously and still somehow coming to different conclusions about it. That's what he's saying, and I agree with it, uh, and that's basically the premise of the first part of his video. Again, why I didn't respond to it, because it would be a short video, it would be just like, yeah... Sounds right to me. <laughs> okay, let's keep going. Let me just just work through three objections or concerns that some people have. I take these seriously. I'm trying to be helpful to address the things that really, honestly, are on people's minds as they're maybe really wrestling with this issue, as many of us have. And so I offer this video to try to speak to the most common things I hear in response to what I've argued in my last video, to try to help uh, people wrestle with this. Going a little more into scripture here in this video, the three most common objections I hear are these. Number one, if you deny the historicity of Genesis, that imperils the historicity of the rest of the scripture, because Genesis 1 through 11 is the foundation. Number two, that is taking man's science over God's truth, and that is compromise. So, in other words, interpreting Genesis such that it's open to an older universe, older world, is uh, taking man's science over God's truth, and, you know, so it's like, let God be true and every man a liar. Don't compromise. That's the second concern. And the third one is um, old earth creationism, evolutionary creationism, any view that has death before the fall makes God the author of evil. Because if you have animal death before the fall, then um, this makes God the author of evil, and the Bible is very clear that death comes through sin. Okay, So I'm going to work through each of those, and then I'll address whether uh, the issue about Augustine that I just mentioned. Number one, if you deny the historicity of Genesis, that imperils the historicity of the rest of the Bible, because Genesis 1 through 11 is the foundation. Recall Ken Ham's language of true literal history. In other words, the concern here is like of a slippery slope. We're opening up Pandora's box, you know, that kind of thing. Now, I, I'll just be really short and to the point, uh, because I've learned in YouTube videos, sometimes just clarity and simplicity and focus can be helpful. Don't just drone on and on. <laughs> okay, here's the short answer. We are not denying the historicity of Genesis 1 or of Genesis 1 through 11 by exhibiting openness to interpreting the days as something other than 24-hour periods of time. It's historical. It happened. Okay, what we're, what we're talking about is not whether it's historical, but whether it is literal. Okay, and even that word literal, I'm, I'm going to just use that word, but I, I'm aware that that word actually comes with all of its own baggage, because some people would define the word literal to, to mean that that word has a, a range of meanings as well. Sometimes we use the word literalistic. Okay, 
But just for the sake of this video, I'm not gonna, I'm trying not to get too nuanced here. So just to make the basic point, there's a difference between a text narrating history, that's one thing, and the second thing is how it narrates history, what literary genre is in view. So real quick, he talks about um, he talks about the word literal, and it, that uh, he's very hesitant to use the word literal, but it's a good kind of stand-in for his um, uh, for for what he's talking about. And it, this is a question you'll get from atheists a lot. So do you actually take the Bible literally? Do you do you read the Bible literally? And what he gets into a little bit is uh, it, there there are literary genres. There are different types of genres, and you should read the Bible based. I mean, part of it is based on the genre. And if you want to understand what which genre something is written in, excuse me, there's a bunch of different ways to, to do this, but the best way to do it is by context, 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 context. Uh, so, and, and you've got examples like the Psalms. The Psalms are usually written in such a way that the language is descriptive in a poetic sense. It describes, you know, uh, you know, the, the hills leaping like goats or whatever. Like it describes these things that didn't actually happen or a description of God's power or God's majesty or, you know, or, you know, the wickedness of men or, you know, they're trying to eat up my flesh and stuff like that, where it uses kind of exaggerated hyperbolic language to describe something. In such a case, we would say that, um, you know, do you take the, the, the atheist <laughs> argument? Do you take the Bible literally? So, well, no, I take it in the literal, in the, in the genre that it was intended to be read as. What did the author mean to convey uh, and, and this is not being untruthful to the text to, to take into account what the style of writing was meant to convey. This is what he's explaining. There's, and he's absolutely right that there are different genres, and because of the genres, you should understand the Bible, uh, different parts of the Bible in different ways. And the Bible does use diverse literary genres to convey historical events. The more you stare at it, the more you look at Genesis uh, 1 through 11 and Genesis 1, even more than that, the more you start to see, okay, maybe it isn't so obvious exactly how to read this. Let me just mention a few features in the text that generate some questions. I've already mentioned several of these with Augustine, the light before luminaries, okay? Sometime do an experiment, take out a sheet of paper, read through Genesis 1, and just try to draw it. Day 1, okay, draw day 1. Day 2, okay, draw day 2. Try to picture it. The more you start to think about it, the more you realize there are at least questions that arise that are kind of awkward. Not impossible. So the light before luminaries is, where's the light coming from on days one through three? And then you're asking, does, does God turn this light off at night? Because we still have 24-hour days here, but why are they 24 hours at this point yet? And does the light contain the nutrients that cause plants to grow through photosynthesis on day three? Um, does God supernaturally suspend gravitational forces in a universe without stars and then suddenly switch those forces on in day four? Do you have the Earth just standing there, suspended and without orbit, and then it's sort of catapulted into orbit when the sun is created? Those are legitimate questions. I am not trying to make fun of that. Totally. I mean, you know, I'm not trying to say you can't believe that. I'm not trying to poke fun at that. I'm sincerely not. I'm just trying to say, trying to picture it, it's not crazy to wonder. Kind of like, well, I think the difficulty here, unfortunately, is the expectation of understanding. The expectation that the, mir the miracles of creation, the miraculous creation account, would somehow transpire in such a way that we should be able to understand it, that we should be able to, to, to picture it, that we should be able to even potentially scientifically describe it. For example, light before luminaries. Where does the light come from if the stars don't yet exist? 
Now, from a scientific point of view, you can say, well, we know that all light, all photons that are moving have a point of origin. Uh, you know, uh, matter is converted into energy, and you've got this uh, usually exothermic reaction that also, or, or photo, exo, exopho tonic reaction that produces that produces light and there are people who have um it's some interesting commentaries i read where basically it says well where did the light come from before the sun well it came from the sun jesus and he was their president creation and there's i mean uh, and there's some some fun some fun ways that they that they take that kind of understanding but my point is this is a miracle you shouldn't necessarily expect to you know okay <laughs> I'll, I'll actually use I'll use kind of a joke meme thing that that I saw to to make an example. You're 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 concerned about you know how would this work? Would the gravity be suspended? With you know the, all these different aspects of well, I understand these parts of science. How would the situation work with this miracle? When Jesus was walking on water, if he was walking on water that was moving, would Jesus move along with the water like a like one of those moving walkways in an airport, or would he stand still and the water move underneath him? Now, this isn't a reason to then say, well, because these questions exist necessarily, it didn't happen. That's not what he's saying, but he's going to kind of describe how these questions are a prompter to then, um, these questions about the scientific, the, the scientific realities of a miracle, which again, you shouldn't expect any <laughs> because that's a miracle, uh, would, they, would, they, would, they would lead you to kind of say, well, there might be some other way to better understand this. When the sun is stopped in the sky in the Old Testament, I forget what prophet did that. The sun is stopped in the sky for 24 hours. What happened? Did the earth stop spinning? Did, did, did you know, did, did the rotation, you know, I don't like, like, how, how would it have happened? Would, would the sun start moving in a different way uh, where it was parallel to the earth for an extended period of time? Would gravity cease to be a factor? Would, you know, there's all these questions you can ask anytime a historical event includes a miracle. What happened when Jesus came back from the dead? What happened with Lazarus? Was he beginning to rot because, you know, Lord, he stinketh, as the uh, KJV says. And then, then the, the, the skin, like, kind of came back together, and, and he, uh, he, he recomposed as opposed to decomposed. Uh, did the stench remain? You know, there's all these questions you can ask whenever a miracle is present. And this isn't reason to then say, well, because this miracle doesn't make scientific sense, I should question whether or not this event being described is being described in an allegorical fashion. He talks about the different genres being used to describe, uh, to be described, excuse me, different genres being used to describe different historical events. And Psalms is an excellent example. There are many historical events being described in Psalms in poetic ways that it's not a literal, this is exactly how this happened and the, and the hills literally leaped for joy like, you know, wild bulls or whatever. Um, and, and he uses that example. But in this case, in the case of Genesis, what does the text lead us to believe if not this, this literal account? What, what does the text teach us if not this literal and this light? He created light, and he, then he created these luminaries. I'm going to insert here um, a video or a portion of a video uh, from Dr. Jordan Cooper, and he's talking about this. And, and before, before I put that video in, I'll summarize some of what he's saying, is that it's intentional. This isn't a bug, it's a feature that God specifically creates things out of order. He creates the light before he creates the sun, for example. And you've got these other cultures where they naturally worship the sun. The Egyptian culture, you'd worship the, 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 the sun as the god. You know, you see this bright flaming thing in the sky, you're like, wow, that, you know, is a source of light and heat and all these other great things. That must be 
that must be, you know, the most powerful being in the universe. And instead, God does things in reverse where he creates light first, and then he creates, you know, the, the celestial body of, of the sun. He intentionally reverses this as an insult to show that he does things different than any other culture assumes or God does things. Uh, again, I'll try to find, there's another video that I want to get from, um, another clip from the same longer video from Dr. Jordan Cooper, where he talks about the events of creation, the way that God creates things. And if you have these, these other, these other uh, these other examples of creation where, you know, Tiamat is split in two or, you know, different body parts are ripped off of different celestial beings and then, you know, they're turned into uh, stars or the sea or mountains or, you know, whatever. And in the case of God, God specifically creates by command because of his supremacy. He just says things and they happen. And I think about this event where um, where the centurion comes up to to Jesus and, and he asks for healing for his servant, I believe. Uh, and, and And he just says, you know, my soldiers do what I tell them as soon as I tell them to do it. I know who you are. Merely say the word and it will be done. And that's who God is, is he creates in such a way that's different and distinct from these other kind of myths of creation, these other myths of God. And he does it in such a way, not just a different order, but in such a way that is unique to God, that he speaks and it is. He says, let there be, and there is. And this is unique to, uh, unique to the true biblical God. This, this isn't a common, uh, a common thing in, in most myths, in most sort of creation myths. So, anyways, let's continue. Wait a second, this seems a little odd in terms of the sequencing here. Secondly, you have what Meredith Klein argued for in his classic... So again, what I said... It's not a bug. It's a feature. It's odd on purpose. It's a contrast to the other religions in uh, the other religions that would deny the, you know, the historical reality of Christianity in toto. 1958 article, which every interpreter has to wrestle with this chronology like this. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. Okay, now there's ways around that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it at least might make you ask the question of wait a So he's not saying that there's no answer to this to this conundrum specifically about the the, the brushes or the bushes and the field and the plants and stuff like that. Um, if you look at, for example, the, um, the Concordia Bible Commentary on on this, it, it describes, or maybe it was Lenski. I think Lenski talks about this, and he describes that there's a distinction between that which God created instantaneously and that which God created through the through the natural process. You know, seeds growing in photosynthesis and all this other stuff. So God creates these things, and then before He sends rain down so that the other things can grow naturally, this is when this takes place. So there's a distinction between those things which He made instantly, those plants which he made instantly when he said, let there be, and there was, and those plants which he caused to grow through a natural process. In the same way that there's a distinction between Adam, who he makes out of the dirt or the mud, and those descendants of Adam who are made through procreation between Adam and Eve and, you know, man and woman, uh, there forward. So there's, there's a precedent in the, re- in the rest of creation where, there's, where there are distinctions between God's initial creation and then he not only creates the thing, but he creates the process that will create more things through a natural process. So it's the supernatural instantaneous creation, and then there's the natural process working to continue this creation later. And the event being described is between those two. Before any you know bush had yet grown up or a sprout had grown up out of the uh, out of the earth or whatever. This is not saying that there weren't necessarily any plants at all, because it said that he made them beforehand. 
but that they aren't growing out of the ground yet as a, as a result of a natural process. So again, uh, Dr. Orland isn't saying that there aren't ways to, to deal with a text like I just explained, but rather that there are confusing aspects to Genesis. And again, even Luther, even a- everybody who looks at the text will look at this and say, look, there are things in the text that make you pause and say, wait, how does, how does that work? Or, oh, that's strange. Or why was it said that way? What does that exactly mean? Again, this is a feature, not a bug. I don't think, I don't think it's always God's intent to give us a list of like, this is specifically what happened and how it happened. I think a lot of times God wants us to chew on the text, to investigate the text, to really study the text. And this is, this is one of the beauties of Scripture is that you can just keep digging and you can learn from other people and you can ask other people these questions and learn more and more and more. And you'll never exhaust <laughs> trying to study even one book of the Bible. Uh, you can just keep chewing on it and keep learning stuff all the time, which is why it's so wonderful to be a pastor today. Like, I get to, I get paid to learn about this fantastic, you know, this fantastic uh, collection of God's, God's, God's inspired word. Second, so was it all the plants? Or is this a new kind of plant? Again, I'm not trying to close this down or poke fun. I'm just trying to say, here's some of the things that generate some questions and make it not crazy to wonder about this. By the way, the Hebrew word yom is used here in Genesis 2, verses, verse 4, where it says, in the day that the Lord made the heavens and the earth. So you've got the word day used in a non-24-hour sense here. True, without a number, but still. This is, so this is um, uh, a, a point that's often brought up, uh, is this, this, this word yom, day. So you think about in the day of, so in the day of Hezekiah or whatever, in the day when David was king. And it wasn't, it's not specifically talking about a day, but it's talking about kind of a time period um, versus the word is also used for a specific day. So like, it's your birthday means it's a specific day. In the day of, you know, in the day of King Arthur could mean an entire age where King Arthur ruled England, the Britons or whatever. In this sense, you don't actually have to worry about this distinction because the Bible makes it quite clear when it's talking about a day, an actual 24-hour day in, in creation, because it says, and there's evening and morning, and it, it, at, the end of, at the end of these days, it says there's evening and morning, and you're like, well, what is an evening and morning? Well, it describes that. It describes the cycle of the greater light and the lesser light, the sun and the moon, which, granted, this cycle is going on before the moon and the, and the sun were created, but this shows that there's a, a continuation of this, this day-night cycle. Cycle, this time frame uh, that is used to indicate evening and morning, uh, that this exists even before the celestial bodies are created. So if there's confusion about what does God mean when he uses the word yom, when he uses the word day, does he mean like in the day of King Arthur or does he mean on your birthday, on King Arthur's birthday? Well, again, it, it, another interesting question to ask would be if God wanted to explain a six-day creation how would he do it in a way that is different than he does it in the text? As he says day, okay, could be vague. He says evening and morning, okay, well, how long is evening and morning? And he defines how long evening and morning is, and then he marks evening and morning with the sun and the moon. So this part at least seems, seems to be almost redundantly clear. In, in, again, plenty of stuff to keep chewing on and thinking about and talking about, um, but this part in particular for, for the word yom, for the word day, it's interesting, but it's less, I think people make more of it than, than they should by trying to make it seem more vague than it actually is. Thirdly, you have to try to envision predatory fish and birds created on day five, when supposedly everything is still a herbivore, suddenly growing carnivorous teeth 
and meat-digesting internal organs, at least some <laughs> of them would do this, on day six after the fall. So there's the fall of man. Well, uh, and, and, and why not? Are men not omnivores now? And how did God wait until uh, until after Noah comes off the ark to then take tell him to say, "Hey, you can eat all these you know all these animals running around." Is it so strange that God would allow the the eating of one kind of thing at one point, but not allow it before that point? For example, unclean animals being uh, being allowed to be eaten after you know the cleanliness uh, uh, laws are removed. It's not so strange, and if you think about God's portrait of heaven, this portrait of the closest thing we have to an explanation of perfect creation is the co- the, uh, the comparison of the new world, where you have um, the wolf and the lamb lying down together, where you have these predatory animals and their prey somehow getting along with one another and not eating each other. So in the same way that God's vision of a perfect future could describe some way without the without animal death there's no reason to believe that it would be impossible or even particularly difficult for that to also be his idea of perfect creation uh before the fall of man adam and eve uh fall in the middle east and i affirm a historical fall by the way and a historical adam and eve just in case anyone's wondering about that i'll do another video on that and another video on the flood of noah sometime so and it's good that it's good that he puts this. Um, uh, there, I encountered one person one time. He was talking about evolution. This guy, he says, uh, he's a Roman Catholic, and he says that Adam and Eve didn't actually exist. They were just, I mean, eventually a monkey evolved into you know whatever evolved into whatever evolved into human, and then we just called kind of the first iteration of those when they crossed that little teeny tiny you know imperceptible threshold that that was who was you know kind of Adam and Eve, but not really Adam and Eve. But they were just really, I mean, their ancestors one step removed from them. Uh, you know, one mutation removed from humanity. Uh, we're still around them. It was it was really confusing to kind of understand. I'm like, how did you get to this conclusion? Um, but uh, but yeah. So it's uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Ortland, for for clarifying because it may seem redundant to some people, but there are some interesting beliefs out there, especially regarding creation. All right, I'm going to have to pause this for now. I'm going to continue um, hopefully tomorrow uh, and continue getting into it. So I'm going to pause it for now. So Dr. Jordan B. Cooper just released a video a couple days ago, which is fortuitous. It's actually a clip from a larger presentation that he gave. Uh, the full presentation is on his channel, Dr. Jordan B. Cooper on YouTube. Um, he does the Justin Sinner podcast. It's on his channel. It's called Why Beauty Matters, A Christian Approach with Improved Audio and Video. And this this talk he gave a while back, and I was actually going to take a clip. In fact, I was going to take this exact clip from the uh, from the greater from the greater speech and the greater presentation that he gave, but fortuitously enough, as I was already working on this, he uploaded exactly the clip that I need. So the clip, if you want to view it on Dr. Jordan B. Cooper's uh, channel right now, it's called The Order of Creation Week. Now, before this clip, he had been talking about, oh, the entire thing, he's talking about kind of beauty and why beauty matters, uh, and, and that it's it's a portrait of order, and it shows, you know, beauty in, in our ability to create uh, reflects the beauty in God's ability to create. So before this, he was talking about kind of these these myths of other kind of pagan pagan societies and how they came up with this idea of beauty arising eventually out of order, out of conflict. You've got the sort of duality of the good guy versus the bad guy, or one guy versus another guy, and one guy wins out. And through that chaos and through that conflict, creation just happens to happen and eventually becomes ordered, but that it's chaotic to begin with, and then order happens to result 
from it. Whereas the Christian perspective is order was always the intent, and order is always um, kind of a characteristic of God in the creation. So this clip in particular, uh, this talks about some of the things that, that I had on my mind, this, this, this objection of, you know, light, light before luminaries and, uh, uh, and, and how God goes about creating things by, by speaking them into existence. And again, like I said before, this is a feature, not a bug. This is intentional. So when we see, you know, why does God create light before he creates the sun? It's not, so we say, well, that doesn't make sense. I must be misunderstanding the text. Uh, there is, Dr. Jordan Cooper here explains uh, a way that this is actually intentional to contrast the Christian religion, the biblical religion, with those religions, those pagan religions of the time, which would otherwise worship the sun. So I'm just going to hit play on this video, and we can listen to it because it's pretty short, and I'll get back to Dr. Orton's uh, video after this. We have, in Genesis 1, the account of God creating. Now, there's no fight. No fight at all. There is simply God, right? In the beginning, God. He created the heavens and the earth. Well, how does he do it? He doesn't do it because he's in a fight with Satan and there are these like equal opposing forces and God wins out. No, God is pictured as this divine potentate. He's this king who sits on his throne and he makes commands. And they are obeyed. Let there be light, he says. Boom, light. God commands, his speech creates. Whatever he says, just happens. Now, the creation account is recorded in a particular order. And then it's purposeful. And so this, this order is that there are the six days of creation, and we have the seventh day, right, which is the day of, of rest. Well, so we're looking at the six days of creation. Well, and this order says there are essentially three kind of realms that God creates on days one, two, and three. So first we have, uh, you know, there is the separation, right, of light from darkness. So light shows up right away. Uh, by the way, it's very significant in the creation account that light shows up before the sun does. That is, is quite a statement to the Egyptians, you know, the sun god Ra. Right? Most ancient cultures worship the sun as a god, which kind of makes sense because you look at the sky, you don't know what the sun is. You're just like, this is a thing that gives us light and gives us heat and all the things we want. It must be some kind of, you know, benevolent thing that wants to give these things to us. Well, this is pretty radical to say, yeah, God doesn't even need that thing. Like, it's not just the sun's not God. Like, God doesn't even need it. He could just give you light anyway. So we've got the light and the darkness, these, these realms on day one. So I'm going to pause the video right there. Uh, from here on, he goes on to explain how God kind of creates a um, an environment, and then he fills the environment. And he's talking about the order of creation and how this is intentional, how it's not just a chaotic, well, these things just happen to involve in the, evolve in this order, but rather that God creates the fishbowl and then creates the fish or whatever. He creates the earth, and then he creates the man to dwell on the earth or the man from the earth. And it's this chiastic sort of... Uh, an intentional sort of order of creation. It's an order of creation. It's not a happenstance of creation. And the reason that I showed this clip is twofold. First, to emphasize the the aspect of God as the divine potentate, as, as he talks about, speaking into existence, rather than God having to rely on, for example, natural processes, where or processes where God creates uh, life forms and then kind of creates evolution and then just kind of lets them take their course uh, and has to kind of rely, well, it doesn't have to, but chooses to rely on these things instead, or rather, um, uh, instead of that, instead of a, a almost order out of chaos approach, he just speaks and they are, and this is God's way of doing things. Now, God does work with his hands, obviously. He makes man out of his hands. Uh, he forms the, the dust of the earth or whatever. And later on, uh, in healing miracles, God uh, God actually is physically involved. Jesus is physically involved in the healing miracles. But also, I mean, 
so he's involved, but this is this is also to say that he is the one who can say, let there be, and there is, and this is an important kind of characteristic of God. So that's point one, and point two is obviously, you know, the lights before luminaries things, is this is intentional because this is kind of a slap in the face to these pagan religions. So it shouldn't be necessarily something we look at and say, well, this means that the creation account doesn't can't be taken literalistically. This is something that we can look at and say, oh, this is important. God is doing something that is distinct from the natural order and distinct from other creation accounts to kind of, well, it's, it's an insult to these, these false gods and these false religions. So let's get back to the Dr. Ortland video. Um, I really believe that Genesis 1 is like this, where it's the kind of thing you might look at it at first glance and say, oh, that's obvious how to read that. But then it's like other things where the longer you stare at it, the more you realize this is very intricate, okay? And I'm concerned that some people assume what a literal reading is is basically just how it strikes me on first glance or when I first think about it. Of course, not everyone does that, but sometimes I see people just thinking it's so obvious how to read this text, and they've never read other ancient Near East cosmologies. They haven't really delved into some of the intricacies and challenges that are here. I'm trying to show things that generate why someone from the text might wonder about this. Something to, to keep in mind um, regarding reading other Near East cosmologies is the fact that none of the people recording those were there. Uh, this is often a point that I see brought up. It says, well, you know, look at, uh, you know, the, the biblical creation account compared to these other accounts, these, these other accounts that predate the biblical account. Well, it isn't necessarily true that they predate that biblical account. It could very well be that the biblical account is preserved through Adam and his generations before it is written down later by Moses. This doesn't necessarily mean that Moses is copying or using crib notes or, or that these other Near East cosmologies are forming his view. And this isn't necessarily the argument that Dr. Ortland is making, but this is an argument that I've seen that, well, if you want to understand why the Bible was written, you know, written about creation the way that it was, you have to first understand these other Near East cos cosmological, you know, these creation accounts. Well, no, not necessarily. Just because one is written down before the other doesn't mean that one existed before the other. It could very well be that the creation account happened, and then these cultures that descended from, uh, that descended from these, these, I don't want to call them Bible-believing because the Bible wasn't around them, that descended from the faithful followers of Yahweh, the faithful followers of God, that they used those, they used the biblical creation account to then form their own sort of, uh, their own sort of creation accounts and their own sort of pagan religions. This would explain the similarities, not that they came first because they were written down first, but rather that they based their pagan myths on the truth that they understood that was passed down for generations beforehand. So there could have been an oral, uh, an oral retelling of this is what happened during, you know, during creation, or it could have been that, that God just, you know, showed up to Moses and said, okay, well, here's, <laughs> write this down. This is what, this is how it went. Either way, if we believe that the, the Bible is theanoustos, that the Bible is, is God-breathed, that we have to believe that the Holy Spirit was somehow involved in the preservation and recording of the biblical accounts. So again, um, if you're trying to look at the other Near East, Near East creation myths to understand the original creation account, um, that's it's the cart before the horse or, or whatever the analogy might be. You're trying to understand the original by looking at the the uh, the fan fiction written about the original. You're not going to actually understand the creation account better because you understand the things that people made after the creation account was already accounted to them. 
uh, it's the other way around. You could better understand, like, why would a pagan myth come up with this idea of, you know, the splitting of Tiamat or, you know, whatever. Um, maybe they didn't understand the original creation account. Maybe it was frustrating for them. Maybe they wanted some sort of battle, some sort of, uh, well, you know, you know, people love signs and miracles and stuff. Maybe they want to see some sort of conflict. They wanted to make it more exciting. There are all kinds of ideas. But if you're analyzing one as predating the other, you have to analyze the biblical account as predating all other ones. Because remember, that was what happened at the beginning, and God alone was there, and then God preserved and inspired those to write about it, Moses, uh, to write about that uh, that biblical account. So it must necessarily predate all the other ones, even if it wasn't written down first. So the, the point that I'm making is very modest thus far. If you disagree with an old earth creationist reading, don't say you're denying that the text is historical. Rather say, no, you're misinterpreting this literary genre. This is where the conversation gets stuck and it elevates unnecessarily very often. To great uh, so real quick on, on kind of defining these terms, unfortunately, the misinterpretation of the text often and frequently leads to the conclusion that this is not a historical account. This is sort of a fictitious allegorical account, but it's not a historical reality. That there is a denying of history, the denying of the creation week, by saying, well, this just is 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 just showing the not the actual order like it, timeline, but the order in sense of organization of, you know, here are the here's the God made the, the sky and God made the birds and God was intentional about all these things and all these things stand for something else. But it didn't actually happen. The moment you say it didn't happen this way, it didn't happen the way that it was described in the Bible you are denying the historical reality of it. And this isn't necessarily the case for everybody who has um, who has a different interpretation or an old earth creation interpretation of the Genesis text. But it is common enough that you need to look out for that, where you can say, well, I'm just taking to a different interpretation. I'm just taking a different interpretation. Well, that could very well mean that you are denying that the Bible is accurately recording the historical events as they happened, and you want to see them as sort of a parable. Because remember, parables don't record historical events. At least, I mean, not, nece- not necessarily. They don't necessarily record historical events. I mean, maybe a parable is, you know, it could be compared to something that actually did happen. But if you're saying, well, this is just a parable or this is just an allegory, or, this is just a poetic interpretation of, you know, whatever. At a certain point, you cross that threshold of saying, well, this did not happen as the Bible recorded it happening. And if the God, or if God wanted to record how creation happened, if he wanted to record the week of creation, how would he have done it differently than what he did here, when he said this is day one, and it was day, you know, evening and morning, day two, whatever, whatever. Anyways, we'll keep going. Create sympathy. Imagine you're talking to a friend, and you're explaining that in Daniel 8, the stars falling is symbolical, and it's a reference, it's a way of, that the scripture talks about the persecution of God's people. And someone says, hold, slow down. If you deny the historicity of Daniel 8, then you're endangering the historicity of the Gospels. Now, the response is, Daniel is a different kind of liter- literary genre than the Gospels. The Gospels are widely considered to be in the genre of ancient biography. You can see Richard Burridge's book on that. So you're not denying historicity, you're just denying literalism in Daniel. Well, I mean, if the question is, like, let's pretend, for example, that uh, Daniel was recording a historical event. If you said, no, the stars didn't actually fall, then yes, you are denying the historicity of it. Even so, this is um, this is a confusion. So Daniel, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna disagree about Daniel. Uh, you know, there's a lot of prophetic and apocalyptic language in Daniel, um, but often the argument goes for for Genesis is look here are these poetic elements in Genesis. Therefore, 
It's incorrect to read it historically. Whereas there are plenty of examples of accurate history being recorded in a poetic fashion. So just being poetic, just being of the poetic genre does not then necessarily mean that you read the events as though they didn't happen. Like I could tell you in theory, I mean, I'm not a poet, but I could tell you in theory about a historical event and I could tell you it in such a way that there's rhyme and verse. I was talking with somebody the other day about the charge of the light brigade, this, this, this poem or whatever. And I'm not entirely sure how, how accurate it is historically, but it is, it does kind of give an example of, look, here's an actual event that actually happened. And I'm going to tell you how it happened in such a way that you can remember it, maybe put it to music or put it to, uh, you know, put it in a poetic sense. One of my favorite genres of music, for example, is sea shanties and sea shanties sometimes, not always, but sometimes talk about a historical event, talk about something that actually did happen. Now, the fact that they're poetic, the fact that they use imagery, the fact that they rhyme, or the fact that they're set to music, this means that they're of the genre, not of a, of a written historical text, but they're of a genre of music or poetry. It does not then necessarily mean that they do not accurately and directly describe a historical event. So we have to be very careful if we just kind of take the shortcut of saying, well, Genesis 1 and 2 are poetry— here are the indicators that is Hebrew poetry. Therefore, we should then treat it as though it's not accurately describing a historical event. It's not accurately, literalistically, whichever kind of uh, uh, term you want to use, because I don't want to misrepresent um, the position, literalistically describing a historical event. This is day one, day two, day three, you know, whatever. Like Exodus, I think, 2011 says, you know, that God created the earth in six days. Is Exodus 2011 also poetry? Is it, I mean, it's, it's kind of poetry, like kind of uh, it, it, in the middle of something, of, uh, of something that's not poetry. It just, it, it turns into a quick, a quick way to dismiss the issue, a quick way to create confusion and blur the lines where, where it shouldn't. Just saying, well, it's poetry, therefore, we just have carblage to, to treat it allegorically. It, that's, not, that's not how literary genres work. Um, and again, I'm not accusing Dr. Ortland of this, but I am saying in many conversations that I've had about this topic, that is almost directly the approach. It's, well, you see here are the indicators as poetry, therefore I can interpret it however I want to as, poet, as uh, allegorical, as whatever. I don't have to take it as a, as a historical fact. No, even if it is poetry, that does not necessitate the reading that it is allegorical. So let, let, let's keep going. Eight, you could be interpreting Daniel 8 wrong, but you're not denying that it's historical. You really believe in history Christians were persecuted, and that's what's being referenced, okay? So if, I mean, if you were talking about creation comparing to Daniel 8, you're talking about creation, let's say uh, the creation account describes creation. Well, it would be denying history if you say that God did not create the heavens and the earth. Is it denying history if you say God did not create the heavens and the earth in six days, like Exodus 20:11 or Genesis 1 and 2 say? At a certain point, if the Bible specifically says God created the earth in six days and on the seventh day he rested, and then this is a the the, the pretext for the work week and the Sabbath, and that's a literal, you know, uh, that's a literal six days and then a seventh day of rest. At a certain part, at a certain point, there is actually crossing the line into denial of historical reality or denying the recording, the accurate recording of the Bible. Or suppose you're preaching through the book of Philippians, and you point out that Philippians 2.10 is not literal, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth doesn't mean we have a three-tiered cosmology in which the earth is flat and stationary, heaven is up there, and hell, the underworld, is below us. And someone comes up to you after the sermon and says, no, 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 no. Philippians 2.10 is historical. Don't deny its historicity. You'd say, well, I'm not denying that. I'm just trying to interpret phenomenological language, which is the language of appearance. So I'm not trying to say Philippians 2.10 or Daniel 8 are the exact same as Genesis 1. I'm just trying to make sympathy for this conceptual distinction between literalism and historicity. All right, I'm hitting this on the head pretty hard, sorry, but I just find it is needed. I'm really burdened about this. People do this all the time. So... Something, something to consider in this, um, in this conversation, this investigation, which is what you should be doing and are doing, this investigation of the topic, which I don't think should end at the end of this video or the end of any other video, but you should just keep chewing on the text, is what, and this is my question, this has been my question throughout the entire video, what is the indicator that leads to your conclusion? If you believe, for example, that this is an allegorical statement about creation, what in the text leads you to that conclusion? What words, what phrases, what what references later on in the Bible that refer back to creation? Um, because that can be something. So, for example, like I keep using Exodus 20, 11. That refers back to creation, and it says that this is the precedent, uh, this is the foundation for 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 the Sabbath, the sixth day, the sixth literal days, and then the seventh literal day. Um and well, then you could say, well, what about the Jubilee year? And that's not literally a day. Okay, so we can get into that. But I'm asking, if if I can point to these things in the text, if I can point to evening and morning in the text, if I can point to the creation of the sun and the moon in the text to mark the passing of time, if I can point to Exodus 20, 11, that refers back to these six days and then the seventh day, if I can point to these specific things in the text that say these are what lead to my conclusion, can you do the same? What in the text leads you to the conclusion that this is metaphorical, allegorical, non-historical, non-literalistic, how, however you want to, whatever, whatever alternative kind of uh, understanding of it you want to say, parabolic, um, what in the text leads you to your conclusion? And if it's not something in the text, what, what, what source, what source has authority enough to kind of understand this? Because it could very well be, you could say, well, look, here's, here are other um, other sources that include this sort of Hebrew language, and this is how I understand this phrase in Hebrew because I understand it being used in these other kind of non-biblical sources. But you know, because I understand how how the Hebrew is being used here, I understand that it means something slightly different here. Or here's how I understand the culture, or you know, whatever. Like, what is the what is the source? Now, ideally, there should be something in the text. Hopefully, God includes something in the text to indicate, like, by the way, you know, the the the, the mountains, the hills, leaping for joy. Like, this should be an indicator that there's some sort of uh, allegorical, uh, hyperbolic language being used. Is there any of that? Is there any of that in Genesis 1 and 2? If not, is there any of it anywhere else in the in the Bible referring back to Genesis 1 and 2? Is there anywhere in all of Scripture that says, just as, you know, Genesis is a, is a parable to help us understand, you know, uh, you know, the organization structure, I mean, whatever, like, like, whatever it could be. For example, Jesus refers back to Jonah, and he refers back to Jonah as a historical and actual event. Well, he refers back also to, you know, Adam and Eve as, as literal historical people as well. Um, 
there can be something maybe later on in the text that refers back to it. Uh, and again, I would use I would use these exact arguments. I would use these other places in the text to refer back to the creation account as saying, look, this is what in the text of Holy Scripture leads me to my conclusion. So again, the question that I'm going to keep repeating that I want you to keep thinking about as you go through not just this, but all issues in Scripture is what in the text leads you to your conclusion. It's not that you bring a conclusion and then you try to find text that kind of allows for it, that's that's not that's not the approach that I want you to take in this state in this um, in this iteration of reading the text. I, I want you to look at the text. I want you to find what in the text leads to your conclusion. Let's keep going. Here's the thing I want to say is that if we have a problem with this, and if we don't think that the Bible should communicate in uh, non-literal ways, then that's our problem. Actually, the best way to honor the Scripture and submit to the Scripture as the truth of God is to submit to its way of communicating. That means we have to say, hey, look, the book of Daniel is in the Bible. The book of Psalms is in the Bible. The book of Zechariah is in the Bible. God chose to communicate to us that way. And if we overemphasize literalistic interpretation, that actually can be a way of making it about us. We're kind of this, is, this is absolutely true. This is why I keep asking for the indicators of the text. Here, here, here's a super simple one. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus tells somebody a parable, and it says, and he told them a parable saying, dot, 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 and then he tells them a parable. There's an indicator in the text of the genre, the way that it was intended to be read. And there are many people who fall into much grievous error by taking text and reading it in a way that it's not meant to be read. By actually taking something, for example, from Revelation and reading it as, as a literalistic sort of um, historical I guess reading it, reading it out of the context of its genre. So it is, he's absolutely right. Dr. Ortland is absolutely right. It is essential to keep genre, to keep context, to keep everything you can in mind as you're reading the scripture. But what in the scripture, like, there are indicators in, in, in the text of how it should be read. Um, uh, if Daniel is full of prophecy and, and prophetic and dreams and, and these all kind of visual things, uh, then we can kind of understand how to read the rest of Daniel. Um, what in the text is leading to the conclusion that this should be read in a way other than literalistic history? What in the text indicates this? As, again, remember, you can't just say it's poetry, because poetry can describe history in a literalistic way as well. Just because it's arranged, words are arranged in a certain way does not mean that their meaning has changed. What in the text leads to your conclusion? Here's the next objection. This is taking man's science over God's truth. Now, I think this objection is valid in principle, but I think it, we need to exhibit greater humility in how we interpret the scripture, in how we interpret science, and then in how we interpret their relationship to one another. The reason is, while Scripture is infallible, our interpretations of Scripture can be wrong. In fact, that happens a lot. And there are times where science does correct an interpretation of Scripture, not because Scripture is wrong, but because we interpret Scripture wrong. And uh, that happens. And the most poignant example, I think, is the Church's widespread condemnation of Nicholas Copernicus in the 16th century. We need humility. John Owen's word, evident, he says heliocentrism is evidently against the Bible. We can sometimes think the Bible's so evident. It's just obvious. Look, it's right there in the text. And we need to be humble enough to admit, sometimes we get it wrong in how we read the scripture. 
Today, the church's opposition to Copernicus can seem outrageous to us, but in their context, it made a lot of sense, and they had the exact same appeal. Don't take man's science over God's word. Now, and they had verses like Psalm 93.1, 96.10, First Chronicles 16.30, and others that at least can be, or the book of Joshua, of course, the sun standing still, they all appealed to that one. But the point is, it, you can find verses that at least seem at a superficial reading to say the earth is st- stationary, the earth. There's, there's a distinction that I think is important to make here, especially since he mentioned uh, the, the, the sun standing still. Now, obviously, from the perspective of people on the earth, they could see it looks like the sun is moving through the sky, whereas we would say, no, we are actually moving in perspective of the sun, but all movement is relative to something else, uh, you know, whatever. So so our, I, I, believe, I do believe that, you know, Copernicus is right, and obviously our understanding of kind of heliocentrism uh, is, is the accurate understanding. But there's a distinction between, okay, well, like we understand these things better and saying, okay, well, we're using science to explain a miracle. So if you want to say that, so Joshua, this example of the earth, the, uh, the sun standing still, okay, well, let's say the earth stood still and it wasn't the sun standing still. It's still a miracle. It's still in the sense that you say, well, we understand science and we know that the earth can't stop its rotation and the earth can't stop its, its cycle around the sun. If it's, you know, if it, Actually, for whether it's the Earth ceasing to move while the Sun is always stationary, or whether you believe that the Sun is rotating and the Sun, uh, the Sun ceases to move while the Earth is stationary. Either way, you have the problem that there is that there's a miracle right there. So either way, there is something that is scientifically impossible, something that cannot be described accurately with scientific method, with a naturalistic understanding. So in the case of creation, for example, this is often abused when people say, "Well, look." We understand science better than we did before. True in the case of uh, Copernicus. In the case of creation ex nihilo, this is there's this is not the same thing. This is not okay. Well, we understand what God means by uh, by these verses better. But it's a sense of look. This entire event of creation, this entire event of creation, is a singular event that has never happened in history before or since, and there are no natural laws that allow for this. There are no natural laws, no laws of thermodynamics, no laws of anything that allow for creation ex nihilo of planets and solar systems and 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 man out of dirt. It is impossible, and that's the point. And the abuse unfortunately, of, of those who would try to take science as though science was like a book of like facts. And it's not. Science is a process. Um, uh, a process of understanding that which is observable, repeatable, testable, um, all things you can't do for past events, obviously. Um, unless they're, you know, they're ongoing, then we assume that they've continued in their pattern. But we're just predicting future future iterations of that pattern. In any case, you want to be very careful that you don't conflate the two of saying, well, we understand better what God is describing in the Bible, and, well, this miracle defies defies our understanding of nature, therefore the miracle didn't happen. Like, there, I mean, it seems, I'm trying to explain it in a way that isn't confusing. Um, it, it, it seems like a minute detail, but it is it is massive. And this is unfortunately the problem when people say, well, look, the earth can't be, you know, let's say 6,000 years old, because we have these carbon dating things and they say that the earth is 100 million years old or that this rock is 100 million years old or whatever. Creation account can't possibly mean what it says directly, 
even though it's involving a miracle, because this science contradicts, you know, contradicts the biblical creation account. Now, even if the the um, the dating mechanisms were perfectly accurate, and I, and I would dispute that they are, depending on what they are, because there's different dating mechanisms for different things, uh, and they all have the kind of their their uses and their and their problems and and their benefits and whatever. Even if that was the case, if you could magically wave a wand and say, "Look, I know exactly the age of this rock," even if you could do that, you still run into the problem of the miracle of creation. If you could date, for example, how long wine has been fermenting for, and you use this dating mechanism on wine that was watered two seconds ago in the miracle at Cana, then you would have this problem where science is contradicting, you're using science to try to explain a miracle, and science is contradicting the biblical, biblical account. So that's where the problem exists. Not that science helps us better understand what God is talking about, but in saying, look, I'm going to use science to try to understand this miracle. And if science says it's this way and the miracle says it's this way, well, obviously Jesus didn't make water into wine because we know that it takes a long time for wine to ferment, for grapes to ferment into wine. Therefore, this must be allegorical or poetic in some way where, where the wine already existed somehow and it was fermenting somewhere and Jesus magic, or you, well, you know, like Jesus like, you know, swapped out the jars or something like however the explanation is. I've never seen somebody try to use this exact approach uh, that they use for creation and for the flood in particular. I've never seen them try to use it for any other miracle except for creation and the flood. Maybe, maybe the resurrection, those who would deny the resurrection, but that's like, I mean, that's weird. Um, Anyways, uh, I'll keep going. Hope, hopefully I made a point somewhere in there. That shall not be moved. Now, let me be clear. I am not saying that heliocentrism contradicted Scripture. Far from it. In my work on this, I've talked about those passages. I don't think there's a contradiction. What I'm saying is this is an example where genuine scientific discovery did correct a mistaken interpretation of Scripture. Sometimes thumping your fist on your Bible and saying the, Bi the, the Bible says can be an expression of pride. If it's about you and what you want the Bible to say, but you're actually not even open to the fact that you might be misreading it. That's where we need to read Scripture with wisdom, with humility, with attention to the tradition, and so forth. Similarly, in the context of his discussion of creation... It's, it's important to know that this principle applies both ways. If, for example, you really love the idea of the earth being, you know, you love all these dating mechanisms because it allows you to better understand the universe and you want this to be consistent even all the way back through creation. So you absolutely are thumping your, you know, thumping your fist on the, on the Bible or whatever saying it absolutely must mean something other than six days because I really, really, really need or I really, really, really want. I'm really invested in this idea that the earth is this many million, billion years old uh, because so much of my worldview revolves around this because I try, I put so much trust in these dating mechanisms and, and the red blue light shift and the, you know, and the carbon decay and all these other things. I put so much trust in these things that the, that the Bible must mean, it must mean something other than a six day creation. And, and then you just try to find an, uh, uh, try to find some way that the text could possibly allow for an alternative understanding. You're not, you're not coming to the conclusion based on the text. You're not coming to the conclusion based on the text and the understanding of science. You're coming to the conclusion based on you have a conclusion already set in mind, and you're saying, okay, how, how can I look at the text in such a way that allows for this conclusion? So the question that I've been repeating through this entire video, and I'll repeat again, what in the text, again, you can add your understanding of science to this, what in the text or outside of the text leads you to the conclusion that you have? Does the text lead you to the conclusion that the earth is six million years old? 
six billion, hundred billion, hundred million, whatever the number is now, because it does change frequently. <laughs> it has to do account for for uh, for things that are that are discovered and understood more. Science is is constantly developing. It turns out it's fun. Um, what in the text leads you to that conclusion, or is this a, a conclusion that you want to fit into the text somehow? Is this a conclusion you want to fit in the text somehow? And that isn't necessarily, I mean, it's usually a bad thing, but let's say we understand heliocentrism and we understand the curvature of the earth. And we're saying, well, how do we read the Bible in such a way that it allows for these things? And I think that it's, it's perfectly e reasonable and easy to read the Bible in such a way that saying, okay, look, the earth isn't at the center of the, uh, the, center of the galaxy and the earth isn't flat and you know you're reading he stretches out the four corners of the earth and all these other things you're like well the earth isn't shaped like a pizza box it doesn't have literal four corners there is a way to read the text with the understanding of of the physical you know geometry of the earth uh and this is not saying science overpowers a text this is you know reading reading the text in, in um through the lens of science but in something like this in something like this you have to be very careful you're not crossing that line you're not saying okay I'm not reading the text with an understanding of not just, you know, the hermeneutics and the, and the context and the language and whatever. I'm reading the text with a desire to come to the conclusion that I have already formulated. That's, that's the danger. And the danger that he's pointing out, that Dr. Orland is pointing out, it goes both ways. Both the person who says, absolutely, the earth is flat or, you know, whatever, or the person who says, absolutely, the earth is six million years old. How do I make the text back me up on this? It goes both ways. Because... What is so vexing is not that misguided people should be laughed at, as that our authors, that's the scriptural authors, should be assumed by outsiders to have held such views, and to the great detriment of those about whose salvation we are so concerned, should be written off and consigned to the waste paper basket as so many ignoramuses. That's a funny translation from the translator Edmund Hill there, but again, it's very strong language in the original Latin. The point is just to try, I'm not trying to shut anything down here, I'm trying to uh, bring this concern into greater visibility, that we need to be careful we don't discredit the gospel by over-speaking. Am I saying that we should uncritically accept all scientific claims? No. There are, some scientific, there are some claims made in the name of science that Christians should reject. What I'm saying is we need humility to figure out which ones. This is, um, and uh, he doesn't touch on this directly, but it does seem to indicate in this direction. Um, there is a fear that Christians have that they'll be mocked and ridiculed for their beliefs, particularly when you say things like, well, no, we don't have a diversity of species because of, you know, this evolution of primordial goo into, uh, into all the different kinds and all the different individual species that we have today. Or when we say, uh, you know, the earth was created in six days, and oh, that's absurd, you stupid Christians, ha, 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 ha. There is a fear that Christians have that they'll be laughed at and mocked and we cannot let that fear rule us. You will be mocked. If you believe the Christian truths, all of them, like let's say, let's, let's put this argument about six-day six creation and old earth versus young earth, let's put that aside for a moment. If you say that people are not ultimately going to pay for their own sins, but rather that some God decided to become what? A man? A perfect God decided to become a man and suffer and hum be humiliated on our behalf and, and, and pay for our sins? Any Muslim who hears this, who doesn't accuse you of blasphemy, will laugh you out of the room. That is absurd. The Christian religion is absurd. Now, there's a sense that it all makes, but to the eyes of the unbeliever, this is foolishness. This is foolishness to the person who thinks that they have this perfect grasp of understanding, and, and you're saying that a God created the universe? <laughs> That's absurd.
don't you know that the universe was 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 you know this this ultra compressed like uh, all the matter was ultra comp- compressed in this you know infinitesimal amount of space and then it exploded nothing exploded into everything are you stupid don't you understand basic science we cannot let this fear of of uh, that we're going to be laughed, we're going to be treated as ignoramuses, and, and oh man, those Christians are so dumb, they believe a God created the universe? Let's ignore everything they said. Don't let that fear rule you. And again, this isn't exactly what Dr. Ortland is saying, but this is this is the way that some people take it, is they say, well, I can't possibly believe in this nonsense that Ken Ham says, regardless of how much, how much sense he makes. The fact is that science is settled, and are the leading scientists agree that dot, 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 and any Christian that disagrees with this should be laughed out of the room, and creationism should not be taught in textbooks, and it shouldn't be in the schools, and it shouldn't be part of a biology lesson. It's, Christians need to stop being afraid of that. Yes, it is true that you shouldn't, well, I don't know. I don't know, you know, I, I can't really make a, a, a good faith argument that Christians should not be afraid, or should be afraid of 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 making fools of themselves. I mean, to, to some degree, yeah. Don't 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 be dumb and absurd and whatever, and then give a false representation of Christianity. Um, there is a danger in hypocrisy, even if uh, you know. But like being ruled by this fear of you know people won't take me seriously because I'm a Christian. How can I be a Christian scientist? I have to keep my Christianity to myself. Knock it off. It, I mean, I, be as blunt as I can. Knock it off, because yes. What you believe to to a degree is absurd. It is foolishness to the perishing, whether you're talking about creation or whether you're talking about salvation. It is foolishness to others. And they will use it as an excuse to write off the rest of the Christian faith, but that's not your fault. You should do your best to present, you know, be prepared to make a strong defense. Be prepared to explain the faith that is within you. But don't be so afraid that people are going to laugh you out of the room because you're a Christian and you believe these Christian ideas, whether philosophical or or biological or whatever, it's going to happen. The world is going to hate you because it hated him first. Don't let that fear dictate your adherence to, to, to Scripture. Instead, the question I continue to ask is have a belief. But what in Scripture leads you to that belief? Be prepared to make a defense from Scripture if you can, if at all possible, of this belief that you have, even if it gets you laughed out of the room, even if you're the only creation scientist in, in all of academia, if you're the only Christian in the entire university teaching, the only Christian professor, you will be mocked. And don't, don't let that be an excuse for you to abandon the truth to avoid mockery. And I see too many times Christians adopt a wholesale suspicion towards science. Historically, Christians have spoken of two books, general revelation and special revelation, the book of nature and the book of scripture. These two are ultimately in harmony with one another, but sometimes it's hard to tell how. I'll put up this passage from the Belgic Confession. Uh, This idea of general revelation is very biblical. Uh, Romans 1.20, for example, another great passage is in Psalm 19, where it talks about how day-to-day pours forth speech, okay? Every day, God is speaking through creation. Insofar as scientific claims reflect accurate interpretation of the book of general revelation, we should seek to harmonize them with the book of special revelation. 
Oh, with see. humility and carefulness and hard work and common sense and so forth. Except in those cases where it is describing the miraculous, in which case, by definition, the miracle does not follow the natural order of things. That has to be an exception. If you want to understand what miracles are, they're when God does something that cannot be done naturally. When he walks on water, turns water into wine, raises the dead, creates the entire universe in six days, creates man from dirt, any of these things. Miracles are, by definition, contrary to what we observe through general revelation. Through general revelation, you will never come to the conclusion that one who is dead in the tomb for three days can come back from the dead. You will never. You will never come to the conclusion that God can create the world out of nothing, can create the universe out of nothing, no matter how long you believe it took. Creation ex nihilo is contrary to the laws of thermodynamics, which is kind of a summary of some aspects of general revelation. So the exception has to be made for miracles. You have to make it. Otherwise, you have to deny all the miraculous. And then, I mean, you've got the Thomas Jefferson Bible. And in general, this will be the more controversial part of the video that I hope people will have lasted to a little bit, because I want to talk about the strength of the evidence for an older universe. It's very strong. There's an abundance of evidence in creation for an older world. So here's a metaphor. Suppose you chop down a tree and you see 30 tree rings. The natural conclusion would be the tree seems to be 30 years old, okay? That kind of reasoning is what we face when we look everywhere in nature. We see starlight, coral growth, ice layering, river erosion, as with the Grand Canyon, for example, permafrost formation, layers of craters on the moons of Jupiter and other moons in our solar system and planets, stalactites forming in caves, those are the icicle-shaped deposits dripping down, layers of cooled molten lava, petrified wood, crystal formation, the fossil order, layers of sedimentation beneath the Earth's surface, in the ocean, uh, fossil layers in the bottom of the ocean. Basically, everywhere we look, it's like looking at those 30 rings in, uh, uh, tree rings in the tree. Everywhere we look, it gives testimony to a longer history. So, two points. First, I don't think that these things are as clear-cut as he makes them out to be. In a lot of the examples that he gives, and a lot of the examples that are given, there are a lot of a lot of presuppositions. There are a lot of things that are based on other things, circular reasoning. You're saying, well, this fossil is 400 million years old because we found it in this rock layer that has been dated to 400 million years old. You know how we know it's 400 million years old? Because there was a fossil in it that's 400 million years old. Uh, it sounds absurd, but things like this exist, and I'm not saying this is the entirety of the dating mechanisms, but he, he gives a lot of examples, and in many, if not maybe all of the examples, there are explanations of these things where he is coming to one conclusion from understanding the evidence through one lens and through one perspective of investigation. Whereas if, again, like he's talking about reading the Bible, if you read it through another lens, you say, oh, it's not as clear-cut as we think. It's not like somebody wrote the date of creation on each rock and, and there's only one way to read it. In the same way that he's arguing that there are multiple ways to read, um, read the Bible, there are even more ways. to. It is even harder to read the evidence uh, left behind from from whenever the initial creation was. That's point number one, that there's misunderstanding a lot of these things, and the more investigation you do, again, Dr. Ken Ham does a lot of investigation on this thing, uh, on this topic in particular, and it, it does this um, with regards to apologetics and stuff. Um, 
honestly, I don't do a whole lot because it's kind of boring to me. <laughs> it sounds it sounds kind of pedantic, but I'm like, it's not really that interesting because I understand that we don't understand it as well as we claim to understand. We're like, oh, we know how how old rocks are and all these other things. Well, no, not really. <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of uh, things that we suppose that we can't check. We can't double check uh, with science. If you want to test an experiment, if you want to make a prediction, you can you can observe it, you can repeat it, etc. In this case, on the other hand. There's no way to go back in time and confirm your suspicions about how old something is. You just have to base it on, you know, it lining up with other assumptions that you've made. Uh, and then if they line up, then maybe you're on the right track. That's point number one. Point number two is this all goes out the window the moment a miracle is involved. He talks about looking at a cross-section of a tree and counting the tree rings. You've got 30, 30 rings on a tree. The tree must be 30 years old. Do that with Adam. How old was Adam two seconds after he was created? Go ahead. Look at his fingernails. Look at his hair. Look at his look at his teeth. Look at the size of his body because we know that the earliest stage of a, of a human being, when you know two cells combine together and form one cell, that's not Adam. <laughs> that's not what Adam was. Adam was formed as a man out of the dirt. So how old was Adam? Count his tree rings. What if his tree rings don't line up with how old he actually was? What if he was created two seconds ago and you see him and behold a man? What if that same thing exists, for example, light? Let's say for, for, for the sake of simplicity that there is nothing that affects the speed of light, nothing at all. We know this is not true. Um, there, are ways to, there are ways to actually affect the speed of light by putting it through different uh, material or whatever. Um, let's pretend for a second that it is, that it is absolutely absolute and, and the speed of light can be, can be counted on and it's not affected by anything whatsoever. And you look in the you look in the in the sky and you see a star that's you know a hundred million light years away, uh, so you know that it has taken a hundred million years for that light to reach you. What happens if that light was created before the star? What happens if God, rather than creating a universe where He's got all these stars, He's got all these planets? Okay, okay, I've got I've got my I've got my solar system, I've got my universe set up. And now I'm going to switch on all the lights, and now I'm going to start gravity. But everything was stationary before then, and we have to wait 100 million years for that light to reach Earth, and then I'll start, you know, creating the rest of the stuff. What if instead of that, if he created a solar system that was non-functional, and you had to wait for it to kind of kick on and warm up and things to start moving, what if he created something fully functional? What if in the same way he created fully fermented wine and a fully created Adam, a fully created Eve, what if he did that exact same thing, that pattern that he's establishing with creation, that he creates something fully formed and fully functional and already in the process of growing, already having apparently grown from the single cell organism or from grape juice or grapes into wine? What if he followed his pattern that he already established with the creation of everything else too? What if he created light mid-transit between where a star is and where Earth is? What if he created light affecting the earth before he created the sun and the stars. Now, if only there was somewhere in the Bible that said that he did exactly that thing. There is. <laughs> it's in Genesis 1 and 2. If only there was somewhere in the Bible that established a pattern that he never, in all of Scripture, creates something without the appearance of age. I hate this term, but it's, it's, it, it works. Never in all of Scripture is something created ever without the appearance of age. In anything, when he, whenever he multiplies, you know, bread and fish, he doesn't multiply grains and then bake them into, like, I don't even know what, what, what bread without the appearance of age would look like. 
because bread has to rise and has to be baked and, you know, whatever. Fish have to grow. Man has to grow. Wine has to ferment. The plant has to grow near, uh, like, it's, it's not even conceptual. Like, what? There's nothing that doesn't have the appearance of age. So God creates things with different appearances of age in different stages of development, but there's always a stage of development that they're created in every single time. It is a pattern. And then to say, well, the universe, aside from all of the documented, you know, contrary to every single documented miracle of creation or multiplication or whatever, contrary to all of that in all of Scripture, God must have created a tree with zero rings and then allowed the rings to grow. It's contrary to, to all of the patterns of Scripture, and it's contrary to what's specifically stated in Scripture. So those are the things, the pattern in Scripture and what is stated in Scripture that lead me to conclude, okay, well, God made the universe in six days. Because that's what Scripture says in the, in the, most, clear, in the most clear reading of the text. I mean, again, there's different ways to read the text. I understand that. In the most clear reading of the text, that is what the text says. And with a context of the pattern of creation that he exhibits throughout the rest of Scripture— that's just a continuation of that same concept, that, 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 same, that same pattern. Creation with age, with function, in the middle of its function. That is what leads me to my conclusion. What in the text leads you to your conclusion? Now, so for example, just to explain one of these, layered craters on the moons of Jupiter. I'll never forget studying this one. I'll put up a picture of Callisto, the second largest moon of Jupiter after Ganymede, almost the size of Mercury, larger than our moon. It's the most heavily cratered object in our solar system. There's way too many impact craters to have happened in a six to 10,000 year lifetime. It's been hit by millions of objects over the years. There's so many craters on Callisto that you can't possibly make a new crater without wiping out an old one, okay? That's what we mean by layers of craters. So the question that comes up is, if the world was created, say, 8,000 years ago, why would God go to such lengths to create all those impact creators? If God created water out of, or wine out of water five minutes ago, why would he go to such length to ferment the wine? Because we know that fermentation takes a long time, just like a lot of impact creators takes a long time. If God just created Adam out of the dirt five minutes ago, why would he create him with hair and fingernails? Why would he create him with teeth? Why would he create him with a structure to be able to stand up, to walk around? We know that humans can't walk around on day one of creation. On day one, uh, like, I mean, uh, of conception, <laughs> they don't even have developed legs yet. Why would God do that? Why would God create a, a universe where not every single planet and every single moon is a perfect sphere? A perfectly round sphere without any crater, without any indication whatsoever of its, of its formation, without any indication of age whatsoever. Why would God do that? Well, he did it with, with man. He did it with wine. He did it when he multiplied the bread and the loaves, or the, the bread and the, the fish. Why would he not do that with planets and moons and stars and photons? And striations in the earth, assuming we understand those correctly, and we're not like misinterpreting, I don't know, a worldwide flood as thousands or millions of years of different sediment deposit. That that is his pattern. The better question of why would he do that is is why would he not follow the pattern that he did for every other instance of creation? Now it's, it's good to look at this and say, hmm, I wonder why. 
But assuming we understand the science correctly, apply it to all the other miracles as well. And you'll notice that science doesn't really do a good job of explaining miracles. You see, people will often make this appeal, appeal, and it's a fair one in principle, that, well, God could have created the universe with the appearance of age, just like Adam would have had a 21-year-old body or something like this. But the problem is the abundance and mutual convergence of all this data makes it arbitrary to imagine God putting all this false information of fictitious history everywhere we look. Why? Why would God ferment all of these sugars? I mean, it could, because you know wine isn't just one fermented sugar. It is a lot of sugar fermented. It is a lot. Probably as many, if not more. I mean, if you've got a bottle of a keg of wine, let's say. How many, how many pieces of sugar or molecules of sugar or whatever are fermented into alcohol in that entire keg of wine? Is it the same amount or more than he would do for... I don't know, craters on a, a craters on a moon. Presumably, I mean, it's a lot, right? So, again, if you're talking about, now, if you're just talking about, okay, well, history, whatever, and you're not talking about the miraculous, sure, sure. You know, I, I, I get trying to understand the non-miraculous, the mundane, the natural, through observation of natural processes. But when you're talking about creation and you're saying, well, it's just so frustrating. Why would God do the miraculous when he's doing the miraculous? Why would he do things out of order? Why would he, why, why would he just like he ferments all of, the, all of these particles of, of sugar all at the same time, instantaneously make wine out of water? And by the way, there's no sugar in, in, in water to begin with. So that's another, <laughs> another layer of conspiracy. It, 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 it baffles my mind as to why all of this is accepted as miraculous in these other creation accounts. And again, he mentions Adam. And there's a lot of aspects of Adam that have to be matured if you want to say that he's a fully grown man. And then say, well, look, look at the rest of the universe just has this appearance of age, this fictitious appearance of age. Well, yeah, like if you've got, I mean, that's following the pattern of everything that is described, every creation that is described in detail. Again, Adam, wine, bread and fish, all these things that, are, that we, we see these creation accounts uh, described in detail, all of them have this fictitious appearance of age. If you understand that is God's pattern for creation, then it should not be confusing or surprising when he does that continuously, when he has set up a pattern of creation and he does it for planets and moons. It shouldn't be seen as, well, this is a betrayal. God is being dishonest. Well, no. This is what he what he what he does. Like this is just more of him doing what he already does. It's not if you look at it through that perspective, it's not shocking at all. It's like, yeah, that's actually exactly what I expect. It would be more shocking if God created these things with the appearance of age, Adam, wine, etc. And yet he created the rest of the universe without the appearance of age. Then 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 you would have a case to say, why did he do it here but not here? It's different. It's a contrast. Whereas what we haven't said is, okay, if God made the universe in six days and he created everything with the appearance of age, then he goes on and every other time that he creates something he create, creates with the appearance of age, you're like, okay, well, there's consistency. That's just what God does. So this is why I don't have a problem with it. I don't think it's that particularly controversial. But I don't understand Dr. Ortland's confusion over, because it's consistent. Like, I don't understand why, 
I mean, I understand the frustration of saying, well, I'm trying to understand how old the universe is, God, and, and and you creating these with the appearance of age gets in the way of me understanding these details. I get it. Like, I get that frustration. But, I mean, again, it's consistent, so how can I complain about it, really? Why would general revelation be so deceptive? Why would he put all those impact rates? For miracles. General revelation does not apply to miracles. Keep that in mind. ...on Callisto and everywhere else. Why would he give us a false history of annual temperature in ice core samples that we drill into, or a false history of so many plankton fossils on the floor of the ocean? It's one thing to create Adam with a 21-year-old body. It's another thing to fill his mind with 21 years of false memories. Did Adam speak? Or did he have to learn how to speak? Did he learn everything that, that, that he knew, like over a period of time? This is, I mean, this isn't something that I've even considered before, but really, it is something worth considering. Would God fill Adam's mind with information? Whereas we know that information is gathered, or it's inspired. It's not just instantaneously there when you're born. You don't have a full library of language and understanding of what each animal should be called, and how to walk, and how to eat, and how to do all these other things. This is interesting to consider. I mean, if God filled the universe with information, if God filled Adam's mind with information when he created them, that would again be consistent, wouldn't it? And if you're trying to imagine God creating a planet some other way, what level of development does he have to create the planet at? What level would you expect the planet to be created at? What does a planet without any history of age look like? Because anything, you're like, okay, well, you've got the core and the compression and the, you know, whatever, like a perfectly round sphere with no atmosphere and nothing on it. Or like, like there's, I can't, again, I can't even conceptualize what does a planet look like that has no age whatsoever? Because everything that we observe is a result of something that came before it. Every, every cause thing has, has a cause, right? Every mountain or whatever we see, oh, that's, you know, tectonic plates pushed into each other and created this ridge or what, you know, whatever. What would it look like? Like you're 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 saying, well, you know, God God would have made it in this other way. What would that even look like? And do we have any examples anywhere's of something that's just, you know completely brand new that has nothing that came before it, that was created without the appearance, the false history of age, false information? I I, I literally I cannot I cannot conceive of anything. Even if you want to say, well, <coughs> even if you want to say, here's a star and the star collapsed and black hole and then the supernova and you know whatever whatever process that is, and then there's a new star. Even that new star has some indication of what came before it. It has to, because something caused it, right? Like, there, I can't think of an example of something that has no no history, no appearance of age. Nothing. Maybe you can. Uh, I don't know. Something to consider. All right. If you want to posit fictitious history, you need a compelling reason to do that. Another example would be starlight. So the light we see, if you just go out on any old night and look up, you see stars. The very light you're seeing has been traveling to us for extremely long periods of time. Or it was created before the stars were, in which case this isn't a problem. In some cases, you're looking that, at light that has been traveling to get here for millions of years. Some cases, tens of millions. Some cases, hundreds of millions. Some the, the, the range doesn't actually make a difference. Because like, imagine if God made... Uh, if he made stars only a hundred, like I, I know science, whatever. If God made stars only a hundred light years out, 
or if God made stars 100 million light years out, I mean, you've still got the same issue of why do we see light? Um, why do we see light from these, these ancient stars? Did God make all the stars without any light on the earth, hitting the earth at all whatsoever until after he made the stars, and then after he waited for the photons to travel, uh, the, the light to travel and actually hit the earth? That, like that's, it, get, it gets back to the core of the question. So saying, well, some of these stars are 100 million years out, that doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything if God made the light first before he made the stars. It's, okay, well, yeah, that's part of creation. He made the light, and then he made the stars later on. It's not anything confusing there. Um, it's frustrating that you don't get to measure, like, like what if God made light from a star that appears so distant that the star no longer exists or whatever? Like, you see something 100 million light years away, and you're receiving light from it, and that and, uh, and 100 million years, like, that star no longer exists? Like, that, that'd be really, I mean, confusing to kind of understand if you're, you know, if you're just looking at it from a natural perspective. But if God made the light before he made the stars, and you're like, okay, well... <laughs> Just like the planets and man and, and wine and whatever, he made the universe fully formed and fully functional and everything already rotating and moving around and uh, the light already there and the atmosphere is already present and, and the gravitational force is already acting on each other. He didn't have to make it and make an explosion and then hope that they all, well, you know, direct them all to kind of cosmologically align. Yeah, not a problem if he made the light before the stars, though. Last time I spoke about this, I mentioned creation, uh, starlight being created en route to us, and people got mad because they said, oh, that's the worst one. Why are you I'm not trying to make fun of the view or make it sound dumb. You can believe that uh, there's lots of different options if you believe the universe was created recently. You can say God created it en route. You can say starlight could have, been time, could have happened differently, uh, the, the, the speed of light. But what I would just encourage people to think about is what this would involve, because it seems pretty elaborate and conspiratorial. Here's how Robert Newman puts it. Is it elaborate and conspiratorial, or is it ordered and complex? Does God have a pattern of creating things that are ultra-simple? Or in every single example of creation that we have, is it always complex? What about the human body? Which is it conspiratorial to say that the human body relies on all these different functions to work in perfect harmony with one another? Is it conspiratorial to say that the earth requires, you know, the, the fine-tuning, uh, the argument fine-tuning or whatever, that the earth requires all these specific conditions to maintain life? Is it conspiratorial just because it's complex, just because it's involved? I, I, I don't see that as, um, I don't see that as an issue, I guess. In harmonizing the revelation God has provided us in his word, the Bible, and in his world, the universe, it seems to me that it is pr much preferable to spend our efforts on models that do not require us to believe God has given us fictitious history. Now, Apply these to Adam. What, what, what is bone structure? It's not just like a, like a rock, right? I mean, <laughs> rocks are complex too. I mean, it, it, it's layers upon layers of, of calcium. What about the skin tissue of Adam? Is that a false history? Because your epidermis, the outermost layer of your skin, is dead. Well, if you have dead skin on the outside, then that, that's because you had living skin that kind of grew towards the surface, and as it grew towards the surface, it died, and it becomes a protective layer on the outside of your dermis. So this isn't just an appearance of age. This is a complex history of layers and layers and layers and layers of skin growing on itself. Bones are not, just, are not just an appearance of age, not just, okay, well, there's a bone this big. It's layers and layers and layers of calcium acting on itself, being absorbed and created into these complex structures that make your bone. And then all the marrow inside and all your blood vessels and everything. Everything, it is a complex history of these things growing out from each other. And this applies to Adam. 
So why not apply it to the universe? What What is the distinction? Is it too complicated for God to make a universe in the same way that he made a human being? What, why, why is there, why is this difficult, but this is a given? It, I, I don't, I don't see, is it an order of magnitude that you think that the universe is too complicated? Like, that's not, I don't think that's what you're saying, but I can't, I mean, I don't, I don't see it. What did, what is the, what is the line that God crosses when he makes a universe as complex and fully functioning that he doesn't cross when he makes a human or fermented grapes out of water, by the way, not even out of grapes, of wine, complex and fully functioning. I don't see where one is impossible or unlikely or not probable, whereas the other is explicitly stated and accepted as stated. I, I just, I think that there is, I think that uh, the the hubris of human expectation that we can understand everything through natural processes has gotten to us to such a degree where we say, okay, well, I'm not even going to get into how Adam could possibly exist, but I, the universe, I understand it well enough to know that it is too complicated and too hard and too conspiratorial for God to make that in the same way that he made Adam fully functional, fully formed, and with not just the appearance of age, but layers of growth, a, a full complex history that would have led up to his present state when observed first. I don't, I don't see the distinction there. Maybe you can point it out to me. I would appreciate it, but I, I don't, I don't see why one and not the other. If you disagree with this, my appeal would be we need to work hard to explain all the varied data that does seem to indicate an older universe because we want to. It's not a hard explanation. It's a it's a continuation of of a pattern of God's creating complex and and age, aged, fully functional things. It's not too difficult to explain. Third topic, third objection. This is making God the author of evil. Doesn't the Bible teach that death came through the fall, through sin? And to be sure, I'll put up two passages, Romans 5.12, 1 Corinthians 15.21, that do talk about death coming through sin. But I think that Paul's concern in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15.21 is specifically with human death, not with all death. Because throughout these passages, you have this Adam-Christ typology, and the word all seems to be talking about all human beings over whom Adam and Christ are both federal heads. I'll put up the passages again, and this time you can note what I underlined, where uh, basically it says in, in Romans 5.12, to all men, and in 1 Corinthians 15.22, it's talking about resurrection for all. So if you believe in animal uh, death in 1 Corinthians 15 being referenced, then by consistency you should also posit animal resurrection here. I think it's just better to see that Paul is not trying to give us that. That's not his scope of, of concern. That's not the horizon of his teaching in these passages. Now, let's say you disagree. You say, no, it's not just human death. It's other kinds of death as well. Okay, then you have an obligation to tell us what kind of death is in view because this gets very complicated, and it's as soon as you get into this, you realize it's very hard to find a non-arbitrary cutoff point. Because, you know, typically at the street level, people will say, well, plants can die. Um, but but then the, so then the question just becomes, okay, well, what is really alive? And what's the cutoff point there? And that still is this challenge of arbitrariness. And it's very reasonable for young earth creationists to concede that, like, mosquito death is not evil, okay? Uh, well, 
So while 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 I would point to First um, Corinthians fifteen sixteen that says the last enemy to, to be destroyed is death, um, while I would point to verses like that, where at least in the sense of, and I, I agree with kind of the understanding of the the Romans passage. That specifically the focus uh, that we can all agree on is that the last enemy to be defeated, or that uh, through one man death entered into the world. Um, that if nothing else, this is this is a reference to uh, to human life. The problem is that while we may have, I mean, while you may have to disagree, uh, or let's say young earthers have to disagree on like what exactly qualifies as death. If you if you take a bite of grass or whatever, you rip some of the grass out, and you don't kill the entire plant, even though you're eating the leaves of the plant. Are you killing it? What if you're killing cells? Is cell death the same as death? Now, if we want to say, well, this is ambiguous and this is arbitrary, okay, let's say that there is some arbitrary line out there, but we know that the non-arbitrary line includes at least humanity. Okay, we can agree that there's, like, let's say that there's something arbitrary and we don't understand, but we know at least death will be stopped for humans, right? We know that this passage in Romans is talking about at least, if not more, human death. Do we know of any other lines, any other places in Scripture which talk about, uh, which talk about death, particularly death of, say, a higher classification of animals than invertebrates, or, well, I don't know about invertebrates, about, like, amoebas, Right. Let's look at Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Let's see if this talks about death and the rest of creation beyond just humanity. Romans 8, 18 through 22 says this, For I consider the sufferings at the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is revealed to us. For the creation, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility and willingly uh, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself would be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await uh, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons for the redemption of our bodies. So we know that there is an aspect of all of creation that is affected by sin. If you want to say, well, you know, invertebrate death isn't really evil or whatever. Well, death is death. Death is an is the enemy of life, and God is the author of life. And you say, well, what counts as death? That's that is the difficult question to answer. What counts as death? Does invertebrate death count as death? Does plant death count as death? Whatever amoeba death does that count as death? Bacteria death? Well, okay. We may not be able to answer those questions as specifically as we would like to. But does the Bible ever talk about animals, not just humans, but animal death? Does it ever talk about some sort of perfect existence in which there is no predatory animal death, where there is no, for example, wolf eating lambs? It does. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. This gives us a picture of a perfected world in which not only human death is gone, but so too is animal death. Now, again, you, you can you know make arguments about bacteria and stuff like that and say, well, does that count as animal whatever? Um and it may be hard to set a non-arbitrary line for that one, but what about these things? Verse 6, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, uh, and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the, bre- uh, the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall not put his hand in the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for all the earth, for the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord, and the water covers the sea. 
So if death itself is not good, then it was not a part of original creation. If all of creation groans for redemption, this is because all of creation, not just humanity, was impacted by sin. And if death is a result of sin, then there could have been no death before the fall. And if there was no death before the fall, then there was no natural selection before the fall, no animals being fossilized. And this kind of cuts against the argument of uh, these you know, millions and billions of years of, of uh, evolution that has not been proposed in this entire video, has not been proposed once by Dr. Ortland. But this concept of, well, we have no biblical precedent for saying that there's no animal death before the fall. If we have an example of a perfect world, which is what was created originally, if we have an example of a perfect world in which animal death does not exist, then yes, we actually kind of do. We do have a precedent to say, look, God's perfect design for creation includes these omnivores and predatory creatures, these carnivores, not eating and killing or destroying other animals. So it is super easy to argue against human death. But, <coughs> excuse me, it's super easy to argue against human death. But I think that there's also a biblical case to be made here against animal death as well. That there is some degree of animal that is also protected from death before the fall and after the fall. That somehow changed as a result of sin and will be changed back again like humans as a result of perfection. But also this still feels arbitrary. Why is shrimp death evil, but jellyfish death not? How do you know? How do you know to cut it off there? You see, what I'm trying to show is the complexity of the words life and death. So that... No he, he's right. There is, there is a degree which we don't understand this issue. There is a degree where we can say, well... It would be arbitrary to say that shrimp death, and, and maybe it would be m most consistent to say, though there was no plant death, no insect death, no amoeba death, and somehow this whole system worked. Somehow lions and bears and tigers, oh my, were able to survive without killing anything and eating them. Humans too, because we need our protein, right? Um, <laughs> and, and who knows, a system could have existed like that since it will exist in the future, at least for these higher animals. So we can say, but just because, just because there's an area where we don't have a complete understanding, where we say, well, you know, if we want to try to guess here, it is an arbitrary guess to say, well, you know, squid, jellyfish, you know, they can die, but shrimp can't die or whatever. Like, that is actually, that does sound like an arbitrary distinction. Okay, fine. But just because that, arbi that distinction is arbitrary does not then exclude the text in Scripture which talks about the prevention of death among other animals than humanity itself. So we know that at least to some degree, death was not present, first of all, in humans. We know that. I mean, that's easy. But then second, based on the verses that, I, that have led to my conclusion, we can conclude, if you read it the same way, that this protection from death is also present in at least some other animals. Where that line is, maybe there's a line, maybe there's no line at all. Maybe there was no death of anything before the fall. But at least we know humans, no death. Animals in a perfect world, at least some of them, wouldn't die as well. There is some principle to say, okay, well, you know, the lion and the wolf and the bear and whatever are not killing lambs. And Okay. <laughs> Let's keep going. No one interprets Romans 5.12 and 1 Corinthians 15.1 as just all death. We all have to define that word. It's, it's certainly not talking about all biological cessation. So the question is, what is death? And I think it's kind of, it can get kind of lazy when people just say, well, well I mean, the why not, though? What, why couldn't it include 
all, you know, biological entities. I'm not talking about that. What about cells, maybe? I mean, that's a, that's a good question, I suppose. If you're going from epidermis to epidermis, like I said, the, the skin cells die. But what, what would be the problem with all death being prevented? Why, why is that so outstanding and different than saying that most death or death in only these higher forms was prevented? I don't, I don't know. Maybe he just hasn't encountered anybody who says that there was no death period before the fall. I don't know. I'm not completely opposed to that view. I don't see what's wrong with it. Well, it's all death, and they don't enter into this trying to figure out what's the cutoff point there. I will share my own testimony on this of trying to figure this tough issue out, that it is an emotional issue. I've struggled with this a ton. The greatest uh, struggle that I have had to work through in terms of objections to the Christian faith has to do with animal suffering before the fall. And you know my thoughts on that if you've watched my video on the angelic fall. But what I would simply say for our purposes in this video is to encourage people to see the complexity of this and to be more careful about making this charge that God is the author of evil. We've already seen the position of so many early Christians in the early church like Augustine, Ambrose, Basil, Thomas Aquinas, and others who rebuke that sentiment and say, animal death is not bad. And it's possible that our intuitions about this are shaped differently living in the modern West. The Bible does seem to celebrate carnivores. Psalm 104.21 talks about how the lions get their food from God. Now, you... The Bible also celebrates great warriors. Now, if you're going to say that only human death is bad, then God killing people is bad. But if death is an unnatural consequence of sin, that God uses even this unnatural consequence for his glory, then this applies to animals as well. In the same way that God kills evil people and that that's a glorious thing, or he takes our loved ones and brings them, you know, brings them to heaven, and that's a glorious thing. He uses this evil concept of death, this last enemy to be defeated as death, and it is bad, but he uses it for good just because, you know, it, Psalm 104, for example, talks about uh, the lions killing and this being a positive thing. The Bible also talks about humans killing, or God killing humans, or humans killing each other, <laughs> and talking about that being a good thing. So keep that in mind, I guess say, okay, well, that's just talking about how the world is now, but the psalm seems to be celebrating God's creation. And it continues in verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works? By the way, it's just mentioned numerous carnivores. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both great and small, or small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. It looks to me like the biblical portrait is that God created all these creatures and feeds them all, and that's a good thing. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. We're giving glory to God for killing people. We're giving glory to God for animals killing other animals. It seems consistent to me um, that even if death itself is a bad thing and death itself is is the consequence of sin that will be once at some point re removed, that still it can give God glory. I mean, how could God be a warrior if there's nobody to fight? What is a warrior without a war? What is somebody who can make someone dead if there's if nobody's ever nobody ever dies? Like even 
even in evil, God is glorified. Even in calamity, which I would say is different from evil. So say you've got a storm or, you know, a hurricane or whatever, and many people die. Even in that, as terrible as it is, the loss of human life and human suffering, even in that, God is glorified. And I think the same is true for both animal death and human death. I think it's consistent. But it doesn't necessarily mean that animal death is, is, is good and God's desired, uh, desired outcome of perfect creation or his initial desired um, input of perfect creation. All right, final issue. What about Augustine? Some people say you can't endorse Augustine as an old earth proponent because he believed in a young universe. Now, I have three points of pushback, and I need to say this because several people said this, but I think it's based upon a misunderstanding. I'm not invoking Augustine against a young earth per se, but against the specific view being put forward by Ken Ham as a requirement, namely true literal history, namely 24-hour days. That is the view on the table being insisted upon, and in his own day, Augustine would have had no reason to know how old the Earth is exactly, any more than he would have had reason to know about Einsteinian physics or something like that. We don't blame people in the ancient world for not knowing of these more modern discoveries. The relevant point at hand is he didn't read the text in a literalistic way where it's a blow-by-blow account of how it actually happened. That's the main point. Secondly, I do want to point out, and this is Honestly, I've not seen others say this, but in my own book on this, I read through this passage very carefully, and I think people miss this. Augustine actually doesn't stipulate precisely how old the world is. People get this wrong a lot. There is a passage in the City of God, actually more than one, I think, where Augustine talks about 6,000 years since the creation of man, but he's not talking about the creation of the world. He's talking about the creation of humanity. And when people point this out, sometimes I've seen young earth creationists respond by saying, Oh, but the creation of Adam was a part of that instantaneous creation. Not so. Augustine thinks humanity was created after the instantaneous creation, and just a few pages later, he expressly says, I own that I do not know what ages passed before the human race was created. So we don't know Augustine's position on the exact age of the earth. Though certain- so regardless of whatever Augustine's position is, the important thing, as, as, as a fellow Protestant, I don't know, yeah, Lutherans are not Protestant, you know, I'm, I'm Lutheran, is how did he come to that conclusion? Because it's not enough to merely say, well, here's an example of somebody else who believed something that, you know, that the Bible, that, um, that the earth was created in a time frame different than six 24-hour days. It's not enough to simply say, here's an example of somebody else who believed something contrary to this strict six-day uh, interpretation. You have to show your work. This is, I mean, you can't, in the same way that you wouldn't just say, well, the magisterium dictated it, that it was, therefore it's true, in the same way that you wouldn't say, well, Luther believed in this thing, therefore it's true, the reason his position would have relevance is because he shows his work. How does he come to the conclusion? What text, what in the text, either one, what in the text does he read that leads him to this conclusion of an instantaneous creation with who knows how much time beforehand and then 6,000 years, you know, since the creation of, uh, of man? But again, you know, instantaneous and then who knows ages beforehand. What in the text leads to his conclusion? And can we follow that same, that same stuff in the text, that same interpretation in the text to come to the same conclusion? The same position, I mean, again, I, I, I would hope that I've shown that my position is a result of what is in the text, 
what in the text leads to your position? What would you invite Christians to read in Scripture, the only place that, that the creation of the world is accurately documented? What would you have them read to lead to, that they would come to the same conclusion that you have? It's the same like you're, you're doing a math problem. You show your work, and presumably if, if you've done the steps right and everybody else follows the same steps, they'll come to the same conclusion. But we need to know what the steps are. What led to your position? Most important point is simply this. The gen- Augustine and Augustine influenced the entire medieval West, not universally, but significantly. He didn't read the gen- Genesis 1 as what Ken Ham calls true literal history. Okay? He thought it was basically a framework for describing God's work of creation. All right, to conclude, while we continue to debate this topic, my appeals in conclusion are we should recognize it's not a matter of one side affirming history and the other denying it, of one side caving in to man's science while the other upholding God's word, or of one side making God the author of evil while the other upholds God's goodness. This is an in-house debate among Christians who can and do equally affirm the historicity of Genesis, the complete truthfulness of Scripture, and the goodness of God our Creator. You know, th- this can be true. It can be true, but it commonly is not. It commonly is the case that the people who want to affirm this specific position of, of Old Earth and, and all these other things is they want to say, well, the Bible cannot be trusted in its documentation of history here. So while you shouldn't immediately conclude that because somebody disagrees on um, their understanding of, of Genesis 1 and 2, uh, that they are throwing out all the history of the Bible, it, it's not uncommon that that is true. It's not uncommon that, that people say, well, you know, it's the same thing as like the teachings of Jesus. He's just a, he's just a good teacher, but he's not actually the Son of God. Like, uh, I don't know. You have to be really careful with this. And, and I don't want to say slippery slope. Uh, because usually at this point when somebody is, is saying, you know, well, the earth was not created in six 24-hour days, usually that's not that's not the, pers- the first part of the slope that leads into, you know, unbelief in the, in the Bible. It's usually the other way around if there is unbelief in the Bible uh, to begin with. Again, I wouldn't say it necessarily is always the case, but it is the case enough times that we need to watch out for that. So this was probably a, a long video. I haven't actually edited it at the time of this recording. Um, and I'm going to chop up probably a lot. I, in fact, I, I guarantee that I've chopped out a lot of what Dr. Ortland said because his video alone is 47 minutes, 30 seconds. And I added uh, other clips from other videos in there. And with my commentary, it's probably going to be pretty long as well. Um, so I have not included all of Dr. Ortland's video. So I... I very much invite you to go to the Truth Unites YouTube channel. The video is called Response to Ken Ham, Part 2, Animal Death, Historicity, and Science. I, I would very much want to encourage you to watch the video in its entirety all the way through. You may find that there are responses that Dr. Ortland made um, that better answer or better give a, give a better answer my objections or better give a perspective of his own position and it is unfair to him to only take the clips of that I've used in this video and say well this is the entirety of what he believes he has a lot of complexity and a lot of explanation that goes behind his points that I used here and and there just isn't time to include them all but if you go and you watch all of that video and then you watch all of this video you don't have to watch the same video twice <laughs> uh, in in uh, 
uh, in its entirety. So this is why I've only included portions of his video. Please go and watch all of his video and listen to his entire point. Now to invite, advise you also, um, invite you also to watch part one of his video uh, in his response to Dr. Ken Ham. I hope this has been useful to you guys. I hope it has been beneficial or at least entertaining. Maybe you think, ah, oh, this joker. <laughs> um, again, the question that I've asked throughout the entire video and that I hope that you continue to consider, and if Dr. Ortland ever sees this, uh, that I hope that he considers uh, answering is what in the text led to your conclusion? Um, I did a, I was reading a book on uh, apologetics and it says basically the two, the two most useful questions are what do you believe and why do you believe it? Um, and, and this is, you know, with, with talking with anybody else in theory, if you can give somebody the steps that lead to your conclusion, if they follow the same steps, they should come to the same conclusion. And that's why I continue to ask the same question over and over, because I think this is one of the most important questions to ask on this topic or many other topics. What led you to this conclusion? And if I follow the same path, will I come to the same conclusion or will I find or believe maybe you've misstepped somewhere along the path? That's uh, I've given you some of the text that leads to my conclusion, some of the, the reasons uh, that I followed that leads to my conclusion, and you can examine them and say, ha, you know, Paladin, you uh, you misstepped here. You were supposed to go right, and you went left instead. Okay. We, we can have conversations about that. It's fantastic. But if I don't know what led to your conclusion, then how can I, you know, how can I test the path myself to see if I come to the same conclusion? Anyways, that is more than enough time. Editing this is going to be a nightmare. God bless you all and take care.